are lots of people on the right at the minute that seem to think that widespread societal collapse is incoming, or at least on the cards and probable and worth thinking about. And I think it's, it's worth considering because as a man, I always think about this sort of thing because it's, you know, it's one of those things that you always play in your mind, isn't it? Mm. What would I do if everything collapsed? Yeah. And you, you kind of intuitively find yourself thinking about that, um, which is part of the reason, uh, of many reasons, that I enjoy things like survivalism, bushcraft and prepping, yeah. as well as I enjoy it just for its own sake. Mm. But it is useful to be prepared. However, I think that this is unlikely, and I think this is a very, very important question to address, really, because people call to mind things like general lawlessness, mass migration, increasing cost of living on working families, and a whole host of other things, lots of issues. I'm not going to list them all off. It's basically all the things we cover on the podcast, right? So I'm sure you as a viewer, if you watch us regularly, are familiar with them. I'm not going to bore you and patronize you with going over it all. But these things are used as evidence of an impending collapse. And that's one perspective on it, potentially. And there's certainly big problems, and I'm not undermining how significant they are. I think that, yes, they're very concerning. Um, I think everyone on the right pretty much agrees with me on that. Um, I just think that there's another explanation to this one that I commonly see, at least commonly see online anyway. Mm. And I'm not necessarily saying I'm right and everyone else is wrong. You know, I can't predict the future, nor can anyone else. Mm. So the, the future is uncertain, but I just want people to bear this in mind um, just so people know how much weight to attribute their, their view of the world, right? Yeah. That there are these competing perspectives because I just don't see them. Mm. So, you know, uh, even if you disagree with me, I hope you can appreciate the fact that I'm raising some potential um, counter arguments mm. and it's just worth considering so you can attribute how much weight to give your own ideas. Yeah, my, my position on this is kind of somewhere somewhere in the middle, sensible centrist, of course. Um, and that is that I don't, I mean, there, there are those who genuinely think that like all the author, sort of authority structures are going to collapse and it's literally going to be like the road or like a sort of zombie apocalypse type mm -hmm. society, like society scenario um, where we are literally like walking in the streets with weapons and people are just attacking each other and it's just like anarchy. I don't think that's anywhere close to happening. I think it's absurd. I very much like agree that. with you, yeah. Um, however, I do think that there is, an, there is a certain element, particularly in the male brain, that does kind of want that in a to a certain extent. Because, you know, following on from the uh, segment about martial arts, um, I think there is a kind of, I don't know, in the lizard brain, there is a desire for a kind of violent and dangerous world <laughs> to protect your family. And, it it um, obviously would be a horrendous tragedy if this happened. One would. of the worst things to happen to human civilization in its entire history. Yes, so, and I agree. There is and, that. and it's not it's not desirable as much as there might be those fleeting moments where you think, oh, that'd be kind well, of... Well, it's kind of like the impulse of being close to an edge and getting the edge yeah. to jump, isn't it? You, yeah. you need to just ignore yeah. it because to listen would yeah. be unconscionable. That said, it's like the decline is undeniable. The decline is mm. very real. You can see it. You can see it in the streets. Like if you, no offense, walk through the town center of Swindon. Oh, don't worry. I don't identify with yeah. the place I live. Mm. I'm, I'm here for work. I yeah. I'm not here by choice. Yeah. But you can, you can see it. You can smell it. You know, it's, it's, it's everywhere. And I think that that is real. That is happening. Um, and I think the kind, but the kind of, you know, the collapse is coming type narrative. I, I just don't think, I don't think the collapse in that dramatic way is, again, anywhere close to happening. And I think, um, to, to give some people credit, uh, the argument normally is there's going to be slow decline and things get more and more sort of like a failed state scenario. Yes. Like a, a South Africa's sort of getting that way where it's mismanaged to the point of um, not being able to have electricity and running water yeah. and things like that. 
And I think that's incredibly unlikely. And I'm, I'm going to be going into why. But yeah. first of all, it's worth mentioning what kind of collapse do people mean? Um, do they mean the apocalyptic kind, which we have already talked about, or just a severe economic crisis? And I think actually most people are more on the severe economic crisis side of things yeah. than absolute ap apocalyptic collapse, like nuclear war or something like that. Mm. Like whenever, you know, when the Russia-Ukraine thing was going on and everyone's just like, there's going to be nuclear war. And I was just yeah. like, no, there won't. No. The, the, the stakes not, are not, not nearly important. high enough. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. It might be the biggest thing in the news cycle, but that doesn't warrant yeah. um, the, the death of all life on earth. Mm. So yeah, I, I was trying to caution people against that narrative yeah. and I, I thought it was a little bit sensationalist. But obviously the apocalyptic situation would be awful for everyone, both rich and poor. Mm. If you're an elite, you're most dependent on the system yeah. running because yes. your wealth, your power, all the people that work for you to enable your lifestyle will all of a sudden vanish and you're left on your own in probably a very big house that's perhaps ill-equipped unless you have like a panic room and lots yeah. of weapons um, to deal with that situation. Mm. And I think it's worth bearing in mind that rich people, the elites, the people running the show have the most to lose in that sort of scenario. But an economic crisis is a different story entirely. They actually have a lot to gain and I'll be talking about that later. And I think people also talk about incompetence leading to these sorts of things. And in the case of um, sort of the ANC in South Africa, it's a pretty easy sell yeah, because they are actually incompetent. Yeah. Like, it's like um, they've inherited the Roman aqueducts. You know, they, they, um, people used to think that the aqueducts were built by giants. They didn't understand that it was built by a race of men. Same thing with the infrastructure in South Africa. They've inherited a system that they themselves don't understand. And mm. so they are just mismanaging it. Yeah. Whereas in the West, we're the ones that built these systems. We're the ones that do all the innovation. We're the ones that make the world a better place. Well, you do. You see that in a lot of post-colonial countries, mm -hmm. interestingly. Yeah, that's something that often gets overlooked, isn't it? But point being that the West is the fountain of information. We're not going to be the ones that are, are moving away from it because we are the origin point of modern civilization. Particularly, you know, um, sort of Europe, North America, um, Japan, yeah. Australia, these, these sorts of um, Anglosphere and Western aligned countries, mm. all are very technologically advanced. Yeah. We are the ones pushing things forward. And so it's not going to backslide to that point because only a very small proportion of people in society hold the knowledge to keep it propped up. Mm. And so you don't need that many people to keep things running if you want to. And that's, that's a very important caveat because sometimes the elites don't want to. Mm. Um, it's worth mentioning as well, I have an article. Um, this is very pertinent for what I'm going to say later. The government and the mafia use the same business model. And I basically make an argument that the government um, is more or less the mafia dressed up with legitimacy mm. in that they extract wealth and, and use lots of methods that are similar to one another. Mm. And this is very important in understanding the elites more generally, yeah. I think. So let's talk about the elites because I think it's the most important sort of uh, foundation for my point. So when Winston Churchill was working on in, to form the United Nations after World War II, he said, never let a good crisis go to waste because with crisis comes opportunity. And obviously we're going through lots of crises at the minute. I want to point out that a crisis for you and me is not the same as a crisis for the elite. Mm. For, for the elite, they're um, not only insulated from the crisis, but stand to make a lot of money from it. Yeah. 
And people don't understand the mechanisms of economics that allow them to do this. So I'm going to use some practical examples just to point out the fact that making working people suffer is good for the elite because they make more money off of us. Mm. Um, so um, where was I? So yes, with stocks, um, you know, high volatility yep. is good if you want to make money because you stand to gain the most, but it's also risky, yes. isn't it? So you, you make the trade-off for the risk, mm. but the volatility allows you to potentially gain more money. Mm. But I think that same principle of economics applies to society as well. When there's more volatility, there is more opportunity for the elites to extract wealth out of mm. the working population, which I think is almost certainly going on. I'm, I'm, I know for a fact this is going on. It's just whether it informs my worldview of potential collapse that mm. I think is the questionable part. So you actually, as an elite, you know the people who have the means of solving the crisis, the politicians. However, you bankroll their campaigns. Mm -hmm. They owe you a lot of favors. And so the politicians are indebted to elites. Why do you think you know all of these multinational corporations donate lots of money? Do they really care about the state of the world? They just care about the plight of the working people? Or is it just... Um, exchanging money for favors. Why do you think corruption in the West is so low compared to the rest of the world? Is it that corruption is just an inherent part of human nature and the West has developed institutions that have just legalized corruption? Or is it that actually just somehow our institutions are just better mysteriously, yep, even all though- All straight and narrow, all above board. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I mean, it, it's funny that people trot this argument out because in the same breath, they'll say, um, uh, particularly people on our side, They'll say all the institutions are corrupt and against us, but also they root out corruption that they themselves may well be involved in yeah. for some reason. It's like, hang on a minute, there's a bit of an inconsistency here. Mm. Um, but because they have this relationship with politicians and the people pulling the strings, uh, the private companies, they know the outcome before it happens. They have insider knowledge. And so they can mitigate the risk. Mm. So they can have all the benefits of the instability in society causing these big spikes mm -hmm. um, of, of uh, opportunity to make money, if you will, with the insider knowledge to mitigate the risks. Yes. And so they're not playing fairly necessarily. Mm -hmm. And so through creating these crises, they're creating opportunities for themselves to make as much money as possible. Well, That's my cynical view anyway. Yeah, well, I, I generally agree with what you've just said. James Burnham actually talks about this in The Managerial Revolution because he talks about how it's actually, it's in the managerial class's interest to um, create crises because it, it increases the need for management. Mm -hmm. you know, it increases and government as well, actually. Yeah. So there's a mutually beneficial thing of the politicians help private companies to make money and legitimize their own um, power by expanding it further yeah. and solving issues that yeah. they could have prevented in the first place. And they also, the kind of managerial style of government, it has, there is an incentive to regard literally everything as a crisis, as a problem to be solved. Because that view of the world obviously has everything um, viewed through the lens of balance sheets and, and graphs and so on. Um, and the solution to the crisis is always, you know, some kind of formula, like the application of some theory. Um, which in practice just means an expansion of the managerial class. Well, when all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Well, that's, uh, that's perfect. Yeah, perfect way to put it. So I'm going to use some examples of the value of a crisis just to hammer home. Uh, I'm going to carry on with the uh, hammering related puns yeah. here. The, the point I'm trying to make. So Warren Buffett, I think everyone knows who he is, famous investor, right? Um, 
heavily invested in undervalued companies during the financial crisis of 2008. Goldman Sachs is a very good example of this. So Goldman Sachs received 12.9 billion US dollars in bank bailout funds. Um, and the then Treasury Secretary, um, who was the person who proposed the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act of 2008, um, had previously been a Goldman's chief executive. Weird. Hmm. <laughs> how, how did this happen? Yeah. And then much of the money that um, came from taxpayers went straight to Goldman's clients. And then in 2011, um, when some of Buffett's shares were redeemed, he got a profit of 3.7 billion US dollars. And in 2018, 10 years later, after the crash in his initial investment, he still had 3.13 billion worth of shares. So he did very, very well out yep. of this financial crisis, didn't he? Nice if you can get it, I guess. Yeah. So if you have money, it's much easier to make money. And you make money when there is this instability, yeah. basically. And that is the other thing to note about the kind of system that we live under is the idea that there is any meaningful separation between the various spheres of uh, the economy, let's say, <laughs> is a fantasy because you know these people all talk to each other. They're of the same stripe. Um, and for that reason, they can <clears throat> kind of manipulate economics in a way that benefits them and their friends. Yeah, of course. Mm. It, it's obvious. I mean, you only need to look at um, the fact that um, prior to the 90s, Microsoft didn't donate any money in politics. Then they were um, falling afoul of antitrust lawsuits. Yeah. Then all of a sudden they started donating money mm. and then they're invited in to rewrite the legislation. Yeah. And, it, and there is this kind of revolving door between the kind of upper echelons of the corporate world and politics. Like, for example, some of the people that we have in our country now, Rishi Sunak was a Goldman Sachs um, hedge fund manager. Jeremy Hunt was uh, some, I forget exactly what he was, but it, he was some kind of banker. Um, I'm surprised he wasn't a vampire. Yeah, well, indeed. Not that I can talk. David Cameron, um, before and after his career in politics, has been involved in this kind of work as well. And, you know, it goes on because these people, it's the same skill set fundamentally. Mm -hmm. um, and so they can just sort of apply it to politics and to banking. Um, and for that reason, they do, they're all just, they're all mates and they, uh, they talk to each other. Absolutely. Yeah. And the crisis doesn't even need to be a genuine crisis. Look at certain companies I cannot name on YouTube. Um, but one rhymes with miser mm. um, and how much money they made from the great sniffles of 2020. That's how I'm getting around the YouTube censorship there. Um, hopefully they didn't pick up on that. Mm. But um, yeah, they made a lot of money there from governments as well. It's worth mentioning. Yeah. The government extracted tax money from people and then handed it on a silver platter to these companies who made terms like, you can't sue us if there are problems with mm. this product. Um, so yeah. Also, defense con contractors profiting from foreign wars, um, like Ukraine, cough, cough. Um, also, Bill Gates becomes one of the largest farm owners in America, and mysteriously, Western countries introduce policies to further um, eliminate farming. Mm. Um, look at, say, the Dutch farmers and mm. nitrogen and things like that. And they're just unnecessarily putting up red tape to make it as difficult as possible without directly just requisitioning the land mm. like the Soviets did. Yeah. So, I mean, hopefully this is enough, but I want to look a little bit deeper into the incestuous relationship between big business and politicians to yep. further sell people on this. So what, these, these multinational corporations obviously donate money to politicians and get favors in return. And so let's have a look at this article, which I was very surprised Politico published. It's titled um, Biden Inc. Um, I can't find where the mouse has gone. Where is it? There we go. So here we are. 
Um, but somewhere in this, I'm not going to find it, but I'm just going to read out a little extract about James Biden, of course, a relative of Joe Biden. I think mm-hmm. it's probably his brother. I can't remember off the top of my head. I have looked at all the Biden family corruption, but um, there's so much of it that it's difficult to discern who's who. That's for damn sure. But um, in the 1970s, as Joe was entering the Senate and taking a seat on the banking, I'm reading from the article, by the way, uh, the banking committee, James obtained an unusually generous loan um, from lenders who later faced federal um, regulatory issues. Joe Biden was in touch with two of those banks about his brother's loans, wants to scold a bank executive about invoking his name and attempts to collect on overdue payments. Um, overdue payments, sorry. During the Obama years, several months after James joined a construction firm as an executive, the firm received a contract worth more than a billion dollars to build houses in Iraq while Joe oversaw the US-led occupation of that country. (laughs) I mean, come on. It's as clear as day, isn't Mm. it? What's going on here? Now, I will say on this, and I want to be careful how I say this, because this is clear and obvious corruption and a bad thing. But I do, I'm not entirely opposed to nepotism. And I'll explain why. Um, Because I think, particularly in politics, loyalty is, in certain circumstances, more important than merit. Um, Because, you know, somebody can be highly competent, but also highly treacherous. You know, then they're not, that's not not mutually exclusive. Whereas if someone is loyal, I think that that's, uh, again, especially in politics, it's a more important thing. So I don't think that it's any surprise that people in politics are going to be prioritized, you know, are going to do business with people that they know and people that they trust. Now, I'm not saying that that's the only reason they do business with those people, because obviously they also want to line their own pockets, and that's an important thing to know. Um, and I'm not in any way going to bat for people like Joe Biden. Um, but I just think that it's important to understand that for one thing, it's not always a bad thing to do business with somebody that you know, because I think there is a, a level of trust there that you can have, um, which can be uh, beneficial in the run. Particularly the when it comes to high-level business, there yes. are lots of different ways you can screw someone over. Yes. Um, and also, it's... Uh, well, no, no, that, that was the point I was going to make. I'll leave that there. My sort of cope is that loyalty is one of the factors that I would include in what makes someone um, high in merit for a position in the first place. That's fair. Yep, that's fair. So um, but I suppose it's, it's I'm talking, one factor of many to consider. Yeah, I'm talking about like pure merit, i.e., does do they have the skills and the competence to do the job? Mm-hmm. You know, they're not not taking into account anything else. And I think that that's not that shouldn't be the only consideration. Sure, I, I think that's perfectly reasonable. I mean, companies do consider that just generally, even if they're not in the political sphere. Yeah. Like, how long is this person going to stay with us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the company, and they might pass up on someone who's had a lot of previous jobs and they've flitted around yeah. because they don't have loyalty. Mm-hmm. So it is something that is considered even outside of politics. Yes. So I want to make some points about human behavior more generally. Um, people talk about current trends as if they'll inevitably continue into the future. And I think that this is a mistake because human beings are conscious and we come up with ways of solving the problems that face our civilization just because it's difficult to solve problems that we see on the right doesn't mean that there isn't a solution. It just means that there are people resistant to it and yes. preventing us from solving it in the first place. And the elites in our sort of neo-feudal system, I, I want to call it, um, have very little incentive to push things to the point of collapse. And I think this is the main point I want to make. Yeah, There is um, a Goldilocks zone mm. of exploitation of normal people Say, um, to use an analogy, sorry if this is a bit condescending, but just to get everyone on, on sort of side, if you're a dairy farmer, you don't want to exploit your cows to the point where they stop producing milk, yeah. as in abusing them, basically, which mm-hmm. obviously is morally wrong, but also bad for your business as well. Yeah. 
Um, but you also don't want to give them the best life possible. You don't want to be ha- like hiring a masseuse to relax them, mm. having the most relaxed chill cows outside of India, um, because that's going to be very expensive. You're not going to get the most out of them. If you um, balance between the two and get the most output for the least amount of input, mm. then you're getting the best out of the situation. And that's how the elites view us. Yes. Like, like cattle, almost. Mm. That we are people to have wealth extracted from us. And it's very lucrative for them. And um, they look down on us. If yeah. you've actually brushed shoulders with these sorts of people, the people running the show, they talk to people they see as less than them like they're subhuman. Yes. They're, the way they conduct themselves betrays their approach to the world and business. And hopefully lots of things are sort of slotting into place because I, I think that the collapse narrative is emotionally appealing in a weird sort of way. Yeah. It gives people catharsis to feel like all these terrible things that are going on are going to come to a head at some point, even though it's going to be a tragic thing if it does happen. But I think that it's better to look at the situation um, on these terms. Again, you don't necessarily have to agree with me and I'm, I'm excited to see counterpoints if you have them. Mm. Um, there, there is something else to note here, which is, um, you know, I think the elite that we have now, they actually like to try to frame themselves as being some kind of revolutionaries, particularly the, like the Democrats in America, for example, where they do support organizations like BLM. Um, they like to frame themselves as if they are the counterculture, the subversives, you know, the kind of cool, edgy, you know, interesting uh, people to be around. Um, but actually, this is, it's just lies you know it's of course it's, it is it's, it's all pr isn't yeah it? it's optics i think um, um this ties in quite well to the argument that um you know sort of occupy wall street around yes. 2011 and then a couple of years later all of a sudden race was back on the cards yes. again mysterious how all of a sudden the media just suddenly started talking about this there yeah. are lots of good graphics that show i, I should have included graph. Them, yeah where there's just this massive uptick shortly after yes. that and i think um although i'm a free marketeer and everything mm that the pressure on Wall Street was a very good thing, mm. even though it's coming from the left. Yes. But I think that they did have a lot to answer for, and there were some legitimate oh, yeah. grievances there. And um, this was just a distraction tactic, and yes. that's part of the appeal of this racial thing, as mm. well as it causing crises that give them opportunities. Yeah. But my main point and thing I'm going to end on is that by prescribing incompetence to the elite that is eventually going to lead us to a collapse, you're basically unintentionally letting them off the hook for being malevolently self-serving mm. and deliberately engineering these crises. Because part of the reason that it's so frustrating to see the problems we have in the world today mm. is because they could so easily be solved with correct policy. Yes, That's why it's so annoying. Because we know that if the right government were to come in, mm. it could be solved overnight. Easy. Done. Yeah. Literally, maybe, just... maybe not all of the problems, but some of them yeah. are just created very clearly by the government mm. and by policy and not enforcing the law. Well, we never hear about wise governance, you know, these days. No. And I think that's literally all that's needed to solve a lot of these problems. Just a little bit of wisdom, a little bit of foresight. Yeah, but hopefully I've given you some food for thought, even if you don't agree with me. If not, at least um, you've got something to take away. I've given you lots of examples of things. But I think that it's very important to bear in mind that the elite are not incentivized whatsoever to push a collapse. Mm. They're not stupid. They're malevolent. They're out to get you, in a yeah. sense. They want to extract wealth from you. That's what I think most modern politics is, is resource extraction. Yep. You even need to look at um, social justice types and your proclivity to be inclined towards um, 
calling for racial justice correlates with your dark triad scores, mm, which is basically um, your psychopathy mm. in, a, in a psychological metric. And the frequency that you call for redistribution of wealth is correlated very heavily. Of course, correlation doesn't equal causation, but still, it's interesting. Don't take it at face value, but it's, it's very convenient that the frequency with which people call for reparations and financial distribution seems to be very heavily related with that um, interest in serving themselves and their selves only. Yeah. What does that tell you about the authenticity of these claims? Yeah, indeed. You know, that's the thing. The elites are the status quo and they, they can't be anything else, you know, by definition. Mm-hmm. So to say that they want collapse or that they are <clears throat> fueling collapse is very, very silly. And if anything, it's just a distraction from what they're actually doing. Absolutely. So hopefully you have learned something today. Hopefully I've changed your mind. If not, Hopefully it's been interesting all the same. If you enjoyed that segment from the podcast of The Lotus Eaters, why not visit our website where you can get the podcast live in full, uncensored and for free from one o'clock UK time every weekday. And while you're there, for as little as £5 a month, you can access all of our premium content, such as our new series, Lads Hour, where five of us, guests included, sit around a table and discuss hard-hitting topics like what animal we could fight this week. And for more silliness from the rest of our hosts, you can follow... Harry over at at Harry Lotus Eater on Twitter and all of us over at at Lotus Eaters underscore com. Until next time, goodbye.